Revelation 13, 1 through 10. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Men worshipped the dragon. Oop, let's go on to the next one. There we go. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them, and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all those whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the parts of the saints. So a few weeks ago, um, Lily was, she's been this, this summer doing a volleyball camp where she's learning to play, and they've had some interesting challenges when they're not in, they're giving them some workouts, exercises to do during the week when they're not in camp, and, and creating some competition. So one of the competitions they had for them was a, a plank, holding a plank, and see who, who on the team could hold the plank the longest. And so Lily was practicing a few days and then did her best time and actually won. It was really great. But it made me look up. I wonder how long people can actually hold this thing for. Like, she, I think, I, I, I don't remember, Lily, how long was it? Five minutes or so? Yeah, about four minutes. I mean, it's great. It's about two minutes longer than I really would like to hold one. So it was fantastic. But then I was looking. So who's, who really is the, the master of the plank? And it led me to George Hood, local boy, Naperville, Illinois. George Hood had, had set the record for holding the plank for over an hour, some, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. And then there was this kind of like war of escalation. And the, the, record hold, the record, world record kept going up and up by different folks. And so there was a point where George Hood decided he was going to get the record back. He wanted that world record. But at this point, it was no longer an hour. He was going to have to hold this thing for over eight hours to get that record. Now, George um, is keeping himself in shape. He is, was 62 years old at the time that he attempted this world record uh, attempt. And he trained. How do you train for a plank? Well, you train a long time. It took him 18 months to get ready for this moment. Seven hours a day he was training for that plank. And what do you do to get ready for a plank? Well, he did 700 push-ups every day, 2,000 sit-ups. 
he would do 500 leg squats, 300 arm curls, and then if you're going to practice for a plank, he did a plank. He actually did a lot of them. He would hold his plank pose for anywhere from four to five hours a day to get ready for a year and a half. And all of that was about strengthening the core, building up. I mean, the plank is one of those classic exercises that they have you do to build that core strength. No matter what you do in life, whatever sport you're playing, any kind of athletics, anything at all, or you're just trying to be functional, you just want to be healthy, you want to have good posture, get rid of that lower back pain, all those aches, everyone will tell you, you got to strengthen the core, build the core, build the core. And so the plank is this kind of exhibition of core strength. And as he did all of that work, you think about how crazy it is. A year and a half of training, seven hours a day, what? So he can hold a single position so that he can be still, locked in a position for eight hours. It really, what it is, is this remarkable picture of endurance. Endurance was the, is the exhibition that's on display in, in, a, in a, something like a world record plank holder and it's endurance that is our greatest need as a church. What I find interesting about Romans 13, that the text that Tom just read for us, is that it tells you what it's about. It tells you where it's heading. What do you want to get out of Romans 13? You just look at the end, the very last sentence in verse 10, and it tells you the answer. We're supposed to get endurance. What we get from Romans 13 is a call for endurance and faith, which is to say that Romans 13, I mean, I'm sorry, Revelation 13 is a call for us to build our spiritual core, to build our own core strength as we seek to be the people of God in a fallen world. That's where it's heading. How do you get there? And I think how it gets there maybe surprises us along the way. If you don't have your Bibles open to Revelation 13, I encourage you to get them open. But but just to remind you, it's been a couple weeks since, uh, since I preached. It's been a while since you've been in this text. But just to remember where we're at. Um, we're really at the core of Revelation. Kind of this core central story. And it started back in Revelation chapter 12 when we saw these two signs appear in the heavens. The woman and a dragon. The woman pregnant with child and this dragon, this multi-headed monstrous creature ready to destroy her. The, dragon, the, the woman gives birth to a child. The child is ushered in and becomes, is enthroned. A picture of the church, of the people of God, of Israel, giving birth to Messiah, to Jesus, who is then enthroned, ascended, and is reigning in heaven. And then you have this dragon that begins the war, first goes after the, goes after the child and can't do anything against the child, then goes after the woman and then when the woman is, has nothing, the earth actually rises up against the dragon to defeat the woman. This is all chapter 12. Then at the end of chapter 12, this dragon turns its fury. Now, verse 17 of chapter 12, the dragon is furious because it has been defeated now twice. Defeated as it tried to destroy the child. Now defeated as it tried to stand against the woman. And it turns its attention to the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Israel, the offspring of the church, the offspring that is the people of God. So the dragon is furious, and the dragon's fury now produces a new enemy. There is this ominous moment at the end of chapter 12 where it, um, 
where the, the dragon are, is standing on the sand of the sea. And when that happens, it should have this kind of ominous moment for us. If we, if we think about um, biblical s- symbolism and the idea of the sea is, has always been for them, it's, it's a place of danger. The sea is the great unknown. The depths of the sea is where evil comes. It's the chaos of the world. That's where Jonah, in his rebellion, he seeks to run away from God and he flees, but then he is cast into the very depths of the sea. It is as if he is being swallowed up in judgment. And so here, as this dragon stands before the sea, he is calling forth what seems to be, even at that moment, even before we open up chapter 13, it seems to be something really big is getting ready to happen. And it sure does. And so then as he calls forth, verse 1 of chapter 13, this fury gets this new enemy to emerge from the sea. And this enemy, well, it's this new form of making war. But what you quickly see as the enemy emerges is that the enemy looks a lot like the beast that rises, looks a lot like the dragon. What do you get about him? I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems on its horns. So this ten-horned, seven-headed, ten-crowned beast emerges, which, look back at chapter 12, looks a whole lot like that dragon, which in verse 3 is... Seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems. Well, it kind of looks a lot like him. He's got a few extra horns now, but he's a parody. He actually is mimicking. And actually what happens here in these opening verses of chapter 13 is that the enemy is a parody of the triune God. The enemy, the dragon, the beast, begins to look and mimic, like, mimic God himself. You see this a lot in what's unfolding here. You get... A lot of images of Trinity, three occurs throughout this section here. Verse 1, you've got the horns, the heads, and the diadems, kind of threefold description of the beast. Um, you've got this, uh, the image of the dragon himself, and so the beast looks like the, his origin. So the father, just as the son looks like the father, Jesus is the full image of, of the father. The son is the image of the father, so the beast is the image of the dragon. The, the sea beast is, in verse 2, is leopard, bear, lion. There's this three-headed thing. So this, all of this is, is, is a reflection of Trinity. Verse 2, he gives, the dragon gives the sea beast power, throne, authority. Again, three. Uh, the sea beast, in verse 7, will blaspheme God, the tabernacle, and the heaven dwellers. Three over and over again. The beast himself is, an, is a parody of, of, of Jesus. He, he is reflecting something of him. He's the image of the dragon. The son is the image of the father. Even more so, you get, I think, a, a real explicit moment where it's pretty obvious what's happening. Verse 3, one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled. So the beast is actually parading in a kind of death and resurrection. The beast is reflecting the death and resurrection of Christ. Here, it's not an actual death and resurrection. It's a mortal wound. But in the healing, there's this kind of marveling uh, at what's happening. And people are flocking to this, marveling at what he is. And of course, that's the other piece in all of this, is that the beast is offering himself as a picture, as one to be worshipped. 
Um, you see this in this description over and over. It's the power and throne and authority. So he receives the, the authority that the dragon has to give. So he's offering himself as one with authority, one with power. Um, the, the earth, in verse 3, is marveling as they followed the beast. That is, they're following, they're worshiping. Uh, verse 4, explicit, they worshiped the dragon, for he'd given his authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast. <clears throat> this kind of triune worship, father, son here, We'll get spirit here later in the, in the story in the next couple of weeks. But, uh, but even what they offer, what are, they, what, are the, what are these earth worshipers, what are these dragon beast worshipers offering but saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? Who is like the Lord our God and who can stand against him? The beast, the dragon, is, are offering themselves as a false god, a false vision of worship. They're commanding something of the admiration and the awe and the majesty of the world. You've got these four heads, and I, I mean, I love the images that people paint to say, like, what, is, what would this actually look like? You know, I've, I've got a picture there on the screen for you, but what do you have this beast that he has like a leopard, his feet like a bear's, his mouth like a lion's mouth? All of this is, is a reflection of Daniel 7, and that's really one chapter you could read a lot here in Revelation, trying to understand Revelation, the origin of those images. But in Daniel 7, just real brief, you've got the four kingdoms that are described. And, and they're expecting these four kingdoms, each described like an animal, the animals that are listed here. And each, each kingdom will come, and they'll have a different relationship, kind of a complicated story, but a different relationship with the people of God until Son of Man will emerge. So the basic kind of, you know, the rough interpretation of Daniel 7 is that it's talking about four kingdoms that will rise from the time of Daniel until the time of Christ. And those four kingdoms, Israel's going to be relating to. The Persians, the Greeks, eventually it's the Romans. And each of those are going to have the the world powers. Not all of them are evil. Actually, Israel gets along with some of them, doesn't get along with others. So like I said, it's a complicated story. But ultimately, here, uh, chapter 13 what this beast is, is the sum and the culmination of all of those powers of the world, of all of those nations that have been around Israel throughout its history. Here you see this beast that kind of brings them all together. And it's this awesome image of power and authority. And it's really what it is a description of, I think, in, in the time, is it's, it's a picture of Rome, of the Roman power being the culmination of all of these powers. And if you think about the beast as the nation of Rome, it kind of helps understand a little bit of what's being described here historically. Even the issue of the mortal wound. Now, the big debate, this is, again, everything in Revelation is debated. One of the big debates here in Revelation 13 is, is this talking about a nation or is it talking about a person? And you can read a lot of folks who will say this is the person that it is, and they're looking for the beast, and sometimes they'll name names, and if there's some politician they really don't like today, they'll say, well, that's the beast. And, you know, that, I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think here, again, you're writing to seven churches in the first century in a historical context. What they need to know is that the Roman Empire is powerful, and it is a, has authority, and it does, at times, can do great and wondrous things. It can also do great evil. Even this picture of the mortal wound, I think one of the interesting historical moments that it may be referring to is the death of Julius Caesar, which had happened years ago. I think this is a moment where it's looking back at the past. The death of Julius Caesar was meant to put an end 
to the power of the emperor. It was meant to usher in a kind of restoring the power of the people, the power of the senate, but it didn't happen. Julius Caesar dies, Augustus Caesar comes into power, and all of this stuff unfolds. You know, you've got Liz Taylor and goes to Cleopatra, all that kind of stuff unfolds, and it turns out that Augustus or Caesar winds up being a stronger emperor. And the power of the empire, of the Roman emperor and the Roman empire, it gets even more well and deeply established. And so by the time that this, these churches are functioning, the Roman empire is the central power in the world. And it seems like it's resurrected and is undefeatable. They are living in the shadow of this awesome, mighty power. And it is commanding worship. Even at this time, and by the mid-60s, uh, in the first century, there are emperors that are, that are many, at the time, already many emperors at, at their death were proclaimed to be gods. Now, Nero has started to make that claim. Within 20 years, other emperors will make the claim during their lifetime to say, well, I'm actually a god. Uh, and they command worship, divine worship. That's what the Roman Empire is commanding of these people. And as this, they are surrounded by this, I think one of the things, maybe a little more subtle, but they're commanding this authority, and it's the people of earth that are responding. It's the people of earth instead of the people of the sea. And that's something I tried to point out along the way. Anytime you see a reference to the earth in, um, in Scripture, in, in Revelation Think of it first as a reference to the Jewish people, earth versus sea, Jew versus Gentile. So you've got the whole earth worshiping. The people, the Jewish people, are betraying their faith. They're betraying their loyalty to Yahweh. They're stepping away from who they're meant to do, which is to serve Yahweh and to follow the Messiah, to follow Jesus Christ. And in fact, instead, they are worshiping, verse 4, the dragon. They're worshiping Rome. They're worshiping him as one with authority. They are rejecting Christ and turning to Rome. And as we've talked before early on, the, the story of these seven churches, a lot of the pressure that they're facing, they have Jew and Gentile. They're facing pressures from both. But here in Romans 13, you're seeing a kind of alignment where the Jewish people are turning their eyes toward Rome and they're seeing that as their ultimate power. Well, that's the beast that rises so what happens? Verse 5. Well, one thing I think that unfolds in the next few verses is we see uh, this is a power, but it is a power that is under control. And I think that's a theme that just occurs again and again in Revelation, no matter how stark or how mighty or how powerful the enemy seems to be, the enemy is constrained. What do you see here? First things, I think four different things. One, you see that the beast is on a leash. And where you see that is the constant use of passives in these verses. The beast, verse 5, was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority. Verse 7, it was allowed to make war on the saints. And authority was given over every tribe. When you see that passive, that is generally understood in Scripture as a divine passive. Why is it was given? Because it's given by God. So the beast has an authority, but that authority, that control, that reign is entirely under God's provision. God is determining the limits 
of the power of the beast. So while from the earth's perspective, the beast is under the authority of the dragon, and they are in awe and impressed by both, it's not true. The deep truth is that God is in charge of all of it. That God is determining the boundaries. And what boundaries does he set? Well, he sets at least two. One, verse 5, he sets the boundary of time. He has authority over the duration of the beast reign. And where you see that is in this exercise. He has allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's a phrase we keep seeing over and over again in some form, way, shape, or fashion. We've seen 42 months again and again. We've seen a reference to 1,260 days in chapter 11. I think again in chapter 12. We've seen the reference to time, times, and a half time, which is an allusion to Daniel in Daniel 7 and I think Daniel 11. Time, times, and half time. All of those are different references to three and a half years. 42 months, 1,260 days, time, times, and a half time, three and a half years. What is it about three and a half years? Why do we keep seeing this over and over and over again? Well, a couple things. Three and a half is a broken seven. Half a seven. Seven is the divine number, number of completion. So that, that this evil reigns, it reigns not for some eternally significant time, but for a limited duration. And during that limited duration, God has given this place where this evil's going to have its moment. But even so, God is not leaving himself without a witness. We go back all the way to, I think, chapter 11, and you've got the two witnesses that God raises up that preach and proclaim for 42 months, 1,260 days, time, times, and a half time. The two witnesses are proclaiming the gospel while this stuff is unfolding. It's a broken seven. They have their time. They have their moment in the sun. But it is time limited because God has determined the end. God is using them to defeat themselves. As they do what they do, they are participating in their own defeat. God is in control and rules over the duration of the beast reign. Second, that God rules over the destructiveness of their power. Now, there's a lot of ugly display of power here. I mean, one of the, the recurring words is blasphemy. Verse 1, it's this blast, these blasphemous names on its head that the beast is offering itself as a pretend god. It's parading in divine names and divine figures. It is wanting to be worshipped. Again, in verse 5, the beast is given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. The words that the beast utters are blasphemy. That is, it is proclaiming itself as divine, inviting people to worship in a way that is hostile to God. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies in verse 6 against God, blaspheming his name, blaspheming his dwelling. That is the tabernacle. What is the dwelling? Well, ultimately, it's the people of God. That is those who dwell in heaven. It is uttering these blasphemies over and over. Um, well, why? What's it doing? This blasphemy is against God. It's a blasphemy against his church. Um, but that war is there, but what is he given? He's allowed to utter these blasphemies. He's allowed to make war, verse 7, on the saints. He's even allowed to conquer them. The saints are going to experience some kind of defeat. And yet, right when he says that, what does he say next? Authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth. Now that sounds intimidating because that's the kind of language that we've already been reading about in Revelation. That is the extent of 
Jesus' universal throne. He's got rule, and he wants to rule over every nation, tribe, and tongue, people, and language. All that fourfold description. The beast is a false pretender claiming that same kind of authority, and God is giving that kind of authority for a moment. But to do what? All who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. Now that's our first of several references to the book of life. We're going to see it again in Revelation. But here, it's this, suddenly there's this distinction that we see there's a limit on this power. That the beast rules, the beast conquers, the beast rules over everyone except there is a faithful remnant. And that faithful remnant isn't just somebody that's just being discovered. God's not guessing who they are. God actually has already written their name. And he actually wrote their name in the book of life before the foundation of the world, which is to say that what is unfolding in this moment is God's plan. And in this false parade of worship, this false God that is before these people, those who are giving a claim, those who are joining in the false worship of this false figure, this false God, are revealing themselves to be those who are not of God. There's a separation that's happening in this moment. And that's a big piece of what's unfolding in the chapters ahead. That as this crisis comes, as persecution comes, as the church endures hardship, there is a winnowing of the church. And some that would claim to be followers are shown to not be. We were talking about that in our class this morning as we were looking at the parables, the parable of the talents. See that same kind of theme in Jesus' teaching in Matthew, that as crises come, as persecution comes, as hardship comes, there is a revelation that there are in fact true followers and false followers. And the true followers persevere. The true followers of Christ stay with it in the midst of hardship and they endure. And those who are not fall away. That's some of what's happening here. This authority that this beast has is authority that is destructive, but it is limited. It has a limited duration, has a limited destructiveness, and it actually has a limited audience. That's why I think I want you to see there in verse 7 in that distinction. What authority does the beast have over the true believers, the true church? Well, it's, a, it's authority to conquer the saints, verse 7. But that conquering the saints does not defeat the saints. Verse 8, because everyone whose name has been written before the foundation of the world of the book of life and the Lamb who was slain, well, for those, verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone's to be taken captive, to captivity it goes. Some of you are going to be held in captive. Some of you are going to be imprisoned because of your faith. If anyone's to be slain with a sword, with a sword he must be slain. Some of you are going to die. And yet, the call, verse 10, is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Which is to say that for the true church, the only authority the beast has is to kill us. And that's not defeating us. Because we're following one who comes back from the dead. Doesn't pretend to like the beast did. Jesus didn't just have a mortal wound and then heal, but died, was resurrected. Jesus has already conquered death. 
And so if the only thing the beast has, the ultimate weapon that he has, is to, is to kill, well, that's already been a weapon that's been taken away from him because Jesus has already defeated death. And for true followers, all he can do is take away our lives. But he has no spiritual authority over us. The beast cannot rule our soul. So what do you do with that? Well, I think a couple things kind of navigate this text. How do you get from all of that, some pretty hard stuff, to a call for the endurance and faith of the saints, which is where he ends in verse 10? Well, one, I think you have to see keys. First key is that the temptation of false worship is real. It's something we should take seriously, that false worship parades as something attractive. There is majesty and power and glory here in these, this section that people are drawn to. It is appealing. The masses are drawn to it. And we should not write ourselves out of that temptation. Um, N.T. Wright is writing, I, just, I think he just published a book on the coronavirus, trying to, a theologian that's trying to help us navigate it theologically. And one of the things, I read an interview with him about it, and he was saying that one of the, kind of the default position of the modern church is a, is a kind of place of complacency. That's really where we live in. And, and, and if, if you default, find yourself being drawn to just complacency, where you just kind of say, this is what it is, you're not too worried about things, you just kind of let things go on, you can get wake-up calls. And the virus that we've been navigating now for these last few months should be a kind of wake-up call. But what Wright notes, and what a lot of folks have noticed, is that really the truth is that we're struggling. We're struggling to remain alert. Um, I saw just a few weeks ago that the, the national numbers, something like one-third of church members have dropped out of streaming. They're no longer streaming services. They've kind of given up. And I think our numbers are actually pretty similar. Actually, I think even a little worse. So a lot of folks that need to hear this message aren't hearing it because they're not turned on. They're not on the other side of the screen. Um, we're struggling with a kind of malaise, a weariness even. Are you feeling that? I think any of you that are dealing with have had to make a decision about your kid's school, any of you kids that are going to school and have dealt with the whirlwind of the last few weeks, whether you're dealing with public schools or homeschool or any of these options, we're all tired. We're weary um, because it's been exhausting to make all these decisions and navigate these choices and having things change on us day in and day out. There's a weariness that we're struggling with. And I think, if, I think we're dealing with it as a church, but I think it's there among, around all of us. But it's really, this is a moment that the temptation is to kind of settle into, you know, we have a pre-pandemic complacency that we struggle with. Now we can settle into the mid-pandemic complacency. And, and if we settle into that kind of complacency, we're going to miss out on what this season can do for us, which is to wake us up and to remind us of who we are and what we need to be and what we need to become. Um, it's time, I think, right now for us to kind of take our spiritual temperature in the midst of this thing, because I think we're going to be here for a while. This thing's not going away anytime soon. We're going to be dealing with a lot of these issues for, for the next months and who knows how long. So how is it going? How, how is that spiritual temperament? And I think here, as we navigate that, we've got to kind of draw from that image of that plank, that the work that we have before us, the task that is before us in these weeks and months ahead is more like getting in a plank instead of sitting on a couch. That George Hood, when he talks about that process of holding a plank position for eight hours, that what is that like? He said, well, he said the hardest part is when your elbows start bleeding. 
And he said, once the bleeding comes, he just kind of says this passively, you know, once the bleeding happens, then you really want to quit because it, it hurts. And then eventually you go numb. And then when you're numb, you're, I said, I'm kind of fine at that point because really then what I've got to contend with is um, I just really just want to not be doing this. I just want to quit. And he's got a coach whose entire job for those eight hours is to sit there and just to remind him, keep at it. The, when the bleeding happens, you'll go numb eventually. You'll be okay. And then when the numbness happens, just hang in. They keep like playing his, like he loves like 80s rock music, playing the music, keeping him going, just to hang in that position. And I think that's what we're, we're finding out is that's what we're being called to do right now. We're actually not invited to a season where we get to sit back and lay on the couch and just chill for a while. We're called to a plank. We're called to exercise that core. And we have that temptation to worship something false, to follow something false, to not take this season seriously. Second key navigating this moment is to realize that the enemy is limited no matter how mighty he seems. God is in charge. That's a big theme throughout Revelation. God keeps asserting, keeps reminding, no matter how bad it gets, he's still in charge. He needs to remind them of that because that church, those churches in the first century are getting ready to enter a period of years where it will not look like he's in charge. And they, that is for us too. There are times that if we follow the events around us, we look at the world around us, we see the politics that are unfolding, we see riots in the street, we look at the chaos of our lives, we see ourselves being crippled by disease, by death. We can invite ourselves to think it doesn't seem like God is in charge. And we go right back here to Revelation 13, and we're reminded that even as the beast rises and parades as some kind of false trinity, that this reign of this beast is limited by space and time because God is determining his boundaries. Satan is on a leash. We need to see that he is limited so that we can answer the calling on our lives to exercise real spiritual endurance, to work under the power of God because God here in Revelation 13 and in our lives is the ultimate power. He is the real conqueror. And the third thing I would suggest we see is that our response spells it out for us. This is our call for endurance and faithful witness. This, this season here in Revelation 13, like the season that we're living in now, can be yet another season that can reveal the genuineness of our faith. And we have to resist the temptation to fall into a kind of complacency to fall after the false gods of comfort or fear or a lot of things that can lead us astray in this season. But instead, answer the call to our task. Our task is a kind of holy waiting. Tighten the core, get into the position, and endure. We have to do the hard work of remaining. So I encourage you to assess your own spiritual core right now. Are you pursuing spiritual endurance or have you opted for the spiritual couch? Trust that God can build your spiritual core. The challenge of the moment will reveal the genuineness of your faith. It can reveal the struggle in the midst of the hardship and the hardship sometimes just being kind of tired, the malaise, the weariness. Know that God can use these moments to build the spiritual core in you. Trust him and endure. Trust him 
to help you endure. Let's pray. God, I pray your blessing on our church as we think of different ways, each of us navigating seasons of malaise or weariness or tiredness or just not knowing how to endure. God, I pray that you will strengthen us. Give us ears to hear your word. Give us eyes to see those around us. Give us the courage to reach out, to, to connect with one another, to return and to gathering, to be in a place where we can gather as your people again. God, give us the strength to endure because we can trust in your word and in your mighty power. In Christ's name, amen.